God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from City Light Church in Omaha. Here's Pastor Gavin Johnson. All over the world, the, the cross has become the universally recognized symbol of Jesus and of his followers, Christians and or the church. That's because Jesus' mission was culminated on a cross. Jesus didn't come just to be a moral guide, just to be a religious leader, just to be a sage. He came to be a sacrifice, the perfect one who would die to atone for the sins of the sinful ones, you and for me. The cross is a symbol of brutal torture, of excruciating death, but it is simultaneously the symbol of the incredible, costly, divine love of God. As we look at our Lord hanging on a cross in the text this morning, what I want you to see is his love, his personal love. Yes, for the world, but for you, sinner, and for me as well. Throughout Luke's gospel, we have certainly seen the love of Jesus. It's not been hidden from us. We've seen it as he healed the sick. We've seen his love on display as he's given sight back to the blind, as he's fed the hungry, as he's cast out demons, as he's defended the weak and the marginalized and, and befriended the outcast. But his greatest demonstration of love comes in today's text, where he's going to go to the cross. Another passage says, willingly, not against his will. He goes willingly to die for the sins of all who would trust in him, where he will go to willingly lay down his life that you and I might experience and have life eternal. In this morning's passage, we're going to see these final moments leading up to Jesus's death. In just moments now, chronology, it's moments away Leading up to his cross, he is going to inhabit, as it were, in his body the sins of the world. And he is going to endure not just the agony of the nails, but the full wrath of God toward all our sins. Just the thought of this moment had Jesus, only hours earlier, literally sweating blood from the anxiety racing through his body. Can you imagine the pressure that he is experiencing right now? The horror and the agony that stand right before him in this moment. Our God became man. And so undoubtedly you can imagine the humanly temptations at this moment to panic, to run, to abort mission, to hit the eject button. Can you imagine the, the squeeze that life is putting on Jesus in his humanity right now? My wife quoted to me some good wisdom this last week, as she often did, when I was feeling some pressure some stress, from, some squeeze from just life and from ministry. She reminded me, Gavin, it's when we get squeezed from the pressures of life that reveals what's actually inside of us the whole time. And so here it is, Jesus, as he gets squeezed in this passage, what gets revealed? What comes out under the pressure of the looming cross is the fate of humanity for all of eternity rests squarely on his shoulders in this moment. Under that weight and pressure, what comes out? Well, this passage shows us it's love. When Jesus gets squeezed, love comes out. This passage shows us the selfless love of Jesus flowing out of him in this final pressure-filled moment, and we see it in three distinct sections. We see it in three love-filled comments that he utters in this passage, one as he is on his way to the cross, and two more as he is hung on the cross between two criminals. Specifically, we see in this section his love displayed in his compassionate warning, in his prayer, and in his promise. And that's going to serve as our outline as we walk through this text this morning. And my prayer for us, City Light, as we look at Jesus' final moments, 
is that you and I would see in these moments his deep, personal, costly, aggressive, lavish, purposeful love for you and for me. This morning's passage is not just a history lesson of an ancient man who died. It is an examination of the risen living Lord Jesus who loves you and is intimately at work in your life. This is our Jesus, brothers and sisters, and this is his real and personal love for you on display on the cross. So let's hop into the text this morning as we do the first picture of Jesus's love that comes out in this diagram of love is found in his compassionate warning. We pick up the story in verse 26. It says, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. A Roman crucifixion site would have had vertical posts permanently affixed in the ground. Those didn't come and go. The horizontal cross beam, however, was mobile. It was temporary. And it was the horizontal cross beam that would be carried to the crucifixion site by the condemned one. And at this point, before Jesus' cross beam was placed on his back, we know that he has already undergone a brutal scourging. This means that his back would have been flayed open from the lashes, exposing raw flesh, bones, nerve tissue, severing nerve endings. Many criminals, historians hold, that uh, died before they even made it to the, uh, to the cross because of the scourging process. Now Luke, in verse 26, doesn't tell us why the soldiers grabbed Simon of Cyrene and put the cross beam on his back, but first century readers knew immediately the reason for this. Jesus' body has already been so brutalized that it is unlikely able to physically carry the cross any further at this moment. The soldiers themselves would never carry a cross of execution because of the shame associated with it. And so they would, in these circumstances, grab a non-Roman citizen to shoulder it. In this case, they find, Scripture says, Simon of Cyrene. Simon was a common Hebrew name, so we know that Simon was most likely Jewish. Cyrene was in North Africa, uh, would be right to the left of Egypt, uh, so we know that he is likely uh, an Egyptian Jew, or I'm sorry, an African Jew who is traveling back most likely for Passover to Jerusalem. We pick up the text now in verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So real quick, Luke is painting a very somber picture of this scene. There's a a great crowd following this crucifixion spectacle. Their intent, we don't know. It's likely mixed. There's scoffers and haters and mockers. There's the curious. There's also the beloved ones of Jesus who are grieving and mourning this moment. And specifically, Luke points out that there is a group of women who were mourning and lamenting after Jesus. Now, we know that women have played a prominent role throughout Jesus' life and ministry. Luke has gone out of his way to highlight them. These women may have been the women who have followed him all the way from Galilee as his disciples, but it's more likely that they were local ladies from Jerusalem, because in the very next verse, he calls them daughters of Jerusalem. So it's most likely that this group of ladies who were mourning and lamenting were actually vocational, professional mourners from Jerusalem. That might sound weird to us, but yes, that was an actual vocation and a role in the, the cultural infrastructure of the day. That was a job. You might ask someone, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm an accountant. That's good. What do you do? Well, I cry for people at their funerals. <laughs> really? Did you go to school for that? Yeah, Creighton's got a program. You should check it out. It's a two-year deal. That was a legitimate thing that was happening here. And so these women are likely Jewish mourners who would lament the death of their fellow Jews at the hands of the Romans. 
And by referring to them as, quote, daughters of Jerusalem in the next verse, Jesus is going to be speaking to this group of mourning women as a sort of representative group of the whole people of the Jewish nation, God's covenant people at this time. And here he gives them this warning in verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is an ominous sounding passage here. It's a little cryptic. We got to ask what's going on here. Well, most clearly it's a warning from Jesus. First off, before we get into the details of the warning, however, notice that Jesus redirects these women. He begins in verse 28 by saying, ladies, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your families. So it's interesting that Jesus isn't interested in soaking up sympathy here. He is determined to accomplish the mission at hand. He will go to the cross. He will finish the task that the Father has sent him to accomplish. He's not concerned about himself in this moment. He's concerned about these women. And he's concerned about the Jewish people that he loves. And he is concerned about them and he's concerned about their future. And so he warns them again about this coming day in Jerusalem when things are going to be so bad that it would be better for families that never had children because children are only going to compound the difficulty and grief that they will experience on this day. He's warning them that this impending destruction on the city of Jerusalem is going to be so great that those who are going to have to endure it are going to cry out to the mountains, will you just bury me now? Hill, put me under the weight of your dirt because it would be better to be dead and have this over with than to endure the destruction that they are facing. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, we've already talked about it in the previous chapter. I preached it a few weeks ago. Jesus is warning them about a very real event, the destruction and fall of Jerusalem, which at this point in history was still in the foreground, in the forefront of human history. It happened in AD 70. The Romans, we now know, under Emperor Titus, surrounded the city of Jerusalem. There was a five-month siege. He then killed somewhere between 500,000 and 1 million Jews in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus has warned them in the past chapter, out of love for them, guys, this is coming. The temple's going to fall. The city's going to fall. It's going to be a hot mess of judgment and destruction. When you see the city surrounded, he says, don't hide in your homes. Don't go to the rooftop. Don't go downstairs. He says, head for the hills. Get out of Dodge. Get out of Jerusalem. Don't hide because the whole thing is coming down. And what's striking about this warning that Jesus gives again in chapter 23 is, is look at where Jesus is at. Look at his context. Jesus is now, again, just moments away from his own death. But even in the midst, in the process of his own murderous execution, he's not worried about himself. We see the heart of our Lord as it gets squeezed. He is worried about others. He is warning others. He is grieving what he knows is going to come to these people that he loves. And he's warning them to flee the destruction and violence that is going to be coming to the city. And then he quotes this sort of parable. He says, for if they do these things when the wood is green... What will happen when it is dry? The green wood in this parable represents Jesus, and the dry wood represents Jerusalem. And if you didn't know, green wood doesn't burn very easily. It's hard to ignite. It doesn't stay lit. But dry wood with a spark can light up in flames, and it burns hot, and it burns quick. So Jesus is basically saying that if he, an innocent one, the green wood is about to be thrown into the metaphorical fire and burn what will happen to a sinful people who actually deserve judgment, the dry wood. 
This is a tender warning from Jesus. The fall of Jerusalem was going to be a brutal, bloody, genocidal event. And on his way to the cross, he's warning them again to flee the city, to escape the judgment while there's still time. And we know again from history that many Jews did. They fled from Jerusalem before its horrific destruction. Historians also documented very well that many Jewish Christians got out of the city in time, and they actually went on to spread the gospel throughout the rest of the known world at the time. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, this moment, this real historic moment that he is warning them about, is also consistently throughout Scripture a type, a theological term for a foreshadow. It's a, it's, it's a little picture of a bigger picture that is to come, which is the final judgment of the world. And now we know on this side of this event, the way to flee coming judgment from you and for me is not to run from the city, it's to run to Jesus, our shield from the wrath to come. Do you see the love of Jesus in this final compassionate warning? It may sound harsh, it may sound heavy, but it's the most loving thing Jesus can do for these group of women and for me is to warn all of us to flee from the destruction that is to come. In City Light, this should be our heart as well to warn others. Right now, as fall kicks off, all the brand new seniors are probably taking their senior photos right now. Some are waiting for the leaves to change. They got their new sports jersey, their new cheerleading outfit, their new band gear, and they're out taking senior pictures. And imagine you were out, and it's common to see a photographer and a high school senior taking senior photographs on train tracks. Highly illegal, but very common. You know, something about the depth as you see uh, the perspective go away in the background. Imagine they brought their Bluetooth speaker and pump up jams and, and someone's blown a hairdryer to, to blow the gal's hair in the back. And they're in the moment as the jams play and the blow dryer's going off and they don't see or hear that right behind them is coming a train at full speed. And imagine you witness this. Wouldn't the most loving thing to do to say, hey, destruction is coming. Get out of the way. Flee the destruction that is about to come. And imagine, they turn to you and say, why you got to be so judgmental, you know? I'm not being judged. I'm just telling you that if you don't move, you're going to get hit with massive destruction. Friends, this is evangelism. This is the heart of Jesus. Wrath and judgment are coming. We don't make it up. We're just the messengers, but there is a way of escape. There is a way of salvation. His name is Jesus. Run to him, trust in him, and be saved. City Light, this is the warning that we've been entrusted with to our friends, to our colleagues, to our classmates on our campuses, to our family members, to our neighbors, to the nations of the earth. It's the most loving warning and message we can give. And praise Jesus that he loves us enough to warn us, even with the moments of his final uh, moments on earth, and then to welcome us into salvation. So we see Jesus' love and his compassionate uh, warning. Second in our text, in this diagram of love, we see Jesus' love through his prayer on the cross. Let's hop back into the text in verse 32. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
there was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews, which is a mocking statement. So Jesus is brought to the place called the Skull. This is a a hill outside the city of Jerusalem. You can still go there. We believe today it's a hill that um, um, the very rock shape looks like a skull. That's where it got its nickname. It's where the crucifixions largely happened in this area. Furthermore, it was probably surrounded by skulls or certainly tombs from all of the victims of crucifixion that happened on that hill. And it's there, verse 33 says that Jesus is crucified. What does that mean? That means that this horizontal crossbeam is then taken from Simon of Cyrene. It's then strapped onto Jesus' back. Spikes would have then been driven through his wrists into the cross beams before they hoisted up the vertical post where it would have been attached, or hoisted up the horizontal beam where it would have been attached to the vertical post, and the feet of Jesus would have then been nailed to that post. This, the pain of this moment is unfathomable. This means of execution was so brutal, it wasn't even allowed as a means of death for Roman citizens. In fact, the Romans were told not even to mention it in the presence of their children. This is a grueling and grotesque scene that Luke is inviting us into. Verse 34 says that the soldiers casted lots to divide up his garments. That means he was likely stripped naked. It was a public shaming. It was a mockery. All dignity has been stripped from Jesus in this moment. Verse 35 says the leaders mocked him. Verse 36 says the soldiers mocked him. It then says that Jesus was offered sour wine. Sour wine was a fermented drink made from egg, water, and vinegar. Historians say that this drink was offered by the executioners to the condemned, not to ease their pain, but to strengthen them so that their suffering would last longer. Can you picture this moment? This is the saddest moment in the history of the world. The beautiful glorious, loving creator of the world has become a man. He's healed the sick. He's fed the hungry. He's defended the weak and the vulnerable. He is now being mocked and humiliated, naked, publicly shamed by the very men that he came to save. At the cross, in this gruesome moment, you see the vulnerability of Jesus. You see the humility of Jesus. And at the cross, you also see the horrors of sinful man. The capacity of evil that lives not just inside the Roman soldiers, but inside of me and inside of you, that we, each one of us in the right setting, is capable of mocking and killing our very God. This was the saddest day in the history of the world. And in the midst of it, what do we see Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus saying? These seven verses, Jesus says one thing. It's a prayer. Verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's hard for me not to get emotional thinking about this moment, preaching about this moment. Look at our Lord here. Look at Jesus. Look at his heart. If it's true that getting squeezed by the difficulties of life reveals what's truly been inside of us all along, then what is it that is so real in the heart of Jesus that as it gets squeezed under the weight and pressure never seen before in a human body, what is it that comes out? What's in his heart? Forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It was normal for the one being crucified to spit at his executioners, to to cry out for vengeance, to make idle threats about what's going to be done to the executioner by his surviving family members, but not Jesus. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In his worst, most agonizing moment, get this, Jesus doesn't even pray for himself. His prayer and his focus is on others, and his heart is for forgiveness. 
contextually, what's interesting about this one comment from Jesus is that certainly in Luke's Gospels, it's, it's more than a little ambiguous whom Jesus is praying for here. In other words, who is the them? Is it for the religious leaders who are overseeing this debacle? Is it for the Roman executors who are doing the actual executing? Is it for the crowd that is gawking and mocking? Is it for the criminals who sit on either side? Luke leaves it intentionally ambiguous. Why? He's showing us something. He's showing us that this is an invitation to forgiveness for the whole world. In fact, listen to what the famous British preacher Charles Spurgeon said when he was preaching on this text much better than I. He said, quote, Now, into that pronoun, them, I feel that I can crawl. Can you get in there? Oh, by a humble faith, appropriate the cross of Christ by trusting in it and get into that big little word, them. Have you crawled into that big little pronoun, them? That's the heart of Jesus for you. That's the invitation of Jesus for you. That's the prayer of Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How do you get inside of that forgiveness? How do you get inside that little pronoun, them? How do you receive it? The Bible says it's exceedingly clear, Romans 10 and 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hallelujah. I trusted in Jesus for the first time when I was 16 and I was saved. And I'll tell you this. As a fellow journeyer through life, I have ups and downs. I struggle with sins. I have seasons when my affections ebb and flow for Jesus. On fire one day, ice cold the next. It has been a journey since I was 16. But the one constant in my life is that I have known without a shadow of doubt that I am forgiven. Because the forgiveness of God in the life of a believer doesn't rest on our day-to-day morality, how we are doing on our works, on our religion, on our performance. It is based squarely on the work of Jesus on the cross. Have you received that assured forgiveness? Have you trusted this man on the middle cross who prayed for you? His love for you is personal, it's powerful, and it's made evident in this prayer. Finally, we see the love of Jesus from the cross, this diagram of love in his final promise. We see his love in a promise. We're going to end section 39 to 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a prayer of faith. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Aren't these two men, these two criminals on the cross, but a picture of everyone who has ever encountered Jesus. Two thieves see the same Jesus. They have two different responses and they experience two very different destinies. And everyone in human history will follow after one of these two thieves. Some will mock Jesus, disregard Jesus. They will avoid Jesus. They will seek to explain away Jesus as just another man. And others will bow down before him. They will trust him. And they will cry out to him as Savior. The second thief in this text rightly recognizes two very important things. Number one, he recognizes that he is a guilty sinner. He says in verse 41, we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. What's he doing? It's a confession. I'm guilty. I am a sinner. I am deserving of punishment. Number two, he recognizes that Jesus is innocent. He says in the same word, 
same verse. And this man, he'd done nothing wrong. He rightly understood himself, and he rightly understood Jesus, and then he cries out in faith, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then look at the love of Jesus in his final promise from our passage, verse 43. He says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I love this scene. This man is commonly known as the thief on the cross, and we get to watch him in a moment become the Christian on a cross. He comes to faith in Jesus as the last second on the shot clock of life goes out. Bible commentator Tony Merida points out that in Jesus' invitation here, salvation is experienced in five ways. And I can't summarize it better than Tony, so let me just summarize what Tony wrote. He said salvation, we see in this text, is experienced, number one, immediately. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today's a great word, isn't it? I love the word today. I love it when I get an Amazon notification that says, your package is coming today. It doesn't matter if it's cat food or toilet paper. If it's coming today, I kind of get a little excited. I love it when vacation starts today. Today is a, a great word. And here Jesus tells this man today, you don't even need to take a rest or sleep again before you shut your eyes in slumber. Today you will be with me in paradise. This man was having a rough day prior to that comment. Can we all agree? In fact, he was having the worst day of his life, and with one comment from Jesus, he is now living the best day of his life. Furthermore, and incidentally, we learn something about what happens to Christians when we die here. Our bodies, we know, go into the ground, and they await the final resurrection when Jesus comes back at the end of all things, bodily and physically. But our souls, the immaterial part of us, does not have to wait. The moment that we say goodbye to this earth and to our bodies, we will say hello to Jesus. The Apostle Paul says elsewhere that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So Christian, the day that your body dies is the day that you will see Jesus, no longer by faith, but face to face. And if you have lost someone, which likely every one of us in this room has, that we love dearly, who loved and trusted in Jesus, brother and sister, we can be assured that they are now in the presence of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you have not trusted Jesus for salvation, know that today can be the day of salvation for you. Salvation is experienced immediately. Marita points out secondarily, we see the salvation is experienced eternally. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. In our English vernacular, we might think of paradise as a beach somewhere and some palm trees and a, and a hammock and an ice cold drink with an umbrella, or perhaps for you it's the mountains or, or something along those lines. But I want you to know that this word in scripture is loaded with theological meaning. It's not just talking about a pleasant place. It has echoes all the way back to the creation account in Genesis where our first parents, it says, live together in paradise, but it was there that they lost paradise. But now Jesus has come to regain this paradise so that we can experience not just a pleasant place, but life as it was meant to be lived, a life with no end, fully alive, fully at peace. What awaits the Christian is eternal paradise, eternal life as it was meant to be lived and enjoyed. So salvation is experienced immediately. It's experienced eternally. Third, salvation is experienced personally. He tells this man, today, you will be with me in paradise. Notice that he doesn't just say, today I'm going to send you off to paradise. You're going to love it when you get there. Here's your ticket to heaven. No, paradise is not just a special place of enjoyment. Paradise isn't paradise without the presence of the person of Jesus. 
Friends, we don't just go to a place. We go to be with a person. His name is Jesus the Christ. Psalm 16 says that in his presence is the fullness of joy. Jesus saves us personally to be with him. Fourth, Jesus saves us graciously. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, famous verse says that it is by grace that you have been saved, not by works. And if there was ever any doubt in your mind that this is true, just look at this guy. What has this guy done to deserve heaven? What has he accomplished? What reward has he saved up for by his good deeds? By the time this guy says yes to Jesus, all he's ever done is sinned. He's literally nailed to a cross at his conversion. There is no time to course correct the trajectory of his life. He doesn't even have the opportunity to give a dime to his local church, to get baptized, to do a single good work. His only opportunity is to cry out to Jesus for mercy. And with Jesus, that's more than enough. Jesus promised this day, uh, because of his profession of faith, today you will be with me in paradise. What grace. It's only by grace, brothers and sisters. And finally, Jesus saves assuredly. Jesus tells this man today, you will be with me in paradise. There is no probably, maybe, we'll see how things work out. I love to hedge my bets with my kids. Dad, can we do this? Most likely, yes, but I hate backing myself into a corner, not with Jesus. He says today, you will be with me. Do you know that we can have full assurance? We can know with full assurance whether or not we are saved. I don't know why some churches, some denominations are fuzzy on this point when the Bible could not be more clear. We can know for sure what happens to us when we die. How can we know? Look at this thief. He cried out to Jesus and he was saved. Follow his example. Like this thief, confess that you are guilty of sin. Like this thief, acknowledge that Jesus is the perfect one, the innocent Savior. And like this thief, ask Jesus to save you. Second, Peter says he's, he's willing that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance and a saving knowledge. Jesus is so good at saving, he saves someone from the cross. <laughs> it's beautiful. City Light, what a Savior we have. What a picture of Jesus that Luke has been painting for us that culminates in this moment. Here, Jesus is squeezed by life. He's weighed down with the pressure of the sins of the world. And what comes out? Love. Personal, powerful, saving, forgiving, redeeming love for his people. This morning, if you have not trusted in Jesus, would you put your faith in him today? Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Gavin Johnson of City Light Omaha. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.